And while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you that you've given us this beautiful gift. We pray that with the faculties and the abilities that you've given us to understand and uncover and take and apply, that we can take the truth that you've given us in your revelation, that we can apply it to our lives, apply it to our beings, apply it to our souls, and become new. Uh, God, thank you for this church and the ability to gather together like this. And Lord, please forgive Joel and I for wearing the same shirt every time I speak. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, happy Sunday, everybody. Welcome. I'm excited to be here with you all today. Uh, to share the scriptures is the greatest privilege of my life. And so uh, what we just read is a brief passage from the Bible. And one of the, the core convictions of my life is that this book that we've been given, that we call the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God, that this gift that God has given us is awesome and it is amazing, and it's exhilarating, and it is thrilling, and it's electric, and it's powerful, that it's not just a book that you hold up and you tell people, no, I'm a Christian, see, I have a Bible, and what I believe is somewhere on these pages, it is a book that if you allow it to, it can get into your heart and into your soul and into your bones, and it can change you into what you ought to be. It can transform you on a path towards what God has for your life. It's amazing, it is exciting, and it is thrilling. Now, the reason that I begin with that and lead with that is because there's many people in this room who have attempted to read this book, and that is not your experience with this book. That for many of us, if, if I were to actually be able to have an honest and frank conversation with you about your experience with the Bible, for many people, uh, the, the Bible is boring. You know, for many of us, it's, it's impenetrable. Like, we don't know what it means. And, and, and for many of us, we don't, we don't really know what to do with it. And so what I want to tell you today is that if that is you, if you have that experience with the Bible, if you sit in that place with the Bible, uh, I understand. And I have sat in that position before. I have described the Bible in all of those ways before, boring, irrelevant, impenetrable, unable to understand it, and that's okay. You know, what happened to me in my life is that some Bible teachers came along, men who dedicated their life to studying the scriptures, and they opened my eyes to the Bible, and they taught me how to read it, and they taught me what this thing was, and they opened my eyes. I started to understand what's in here. I started to understand what it was saying. I started to understand what it was saying to me about my life and about my family and about my community and about the world that I inhabit. And when that happened to me, I was electrified by it. I was shocked by it. It, it, it was like a, like a lightning strike into my life, and I went through that process these men studied, they wanted to teach me this, and then they did, and then it changed my life, and I said, I wanna do that. 
that's what I want to do. That's why I went back to seminary. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm a Bible teacher, because somebody did that for me. And I was a part of that process of having my eyes open to the scriptures and the beauty that is within them. And so uh, th that is the, the passion of my life. And so if you've never quite gotten there with the Bible, I want you to know that I'm glad that you're here. And what I wanna invite you into is I wanna invite you to walk with me today as we take a very specific thing that's in the Bible and we unpack it. Uh, this community, this church, this teaching ministry is very, very passionate and committed to helping the people of this community engage in the scriptures. And so if you're here, stick around, stick with it. Walk with us, come to our classes, come to, to Sunday morning, read our Bible plans, read our reading plans, engage with us, and I promise you that the Spirit of God will start to open your eyes to the Bible, and that is a beautiful thing. You know, what happened to me when, when my eyes were open to the Scriptures is that my eyes started to be open to everything else. You know, I started to understand the Bible, and the world started to make a lot more sense. I started to know God. I started to see him more clearly. I started to know myself and my life and my purpose and my mission and what it means to be a human. I started to see that more clearly. And I started to see this world that we all live in and take for granted. I started to see it more as the um, unbelievable gift of grace that God has given us, that he's placed us in the middle of a beautiful gift. And every morning we wake up, we get to experience that gift and every breath we breathe into our lungs is a gracious gift of God in a beautiful world that he has put in front of us and given it to, uh, to us, for us to enjoy. And so let me show you an example of what I mean today. We're going to take communion together. So you have in your hands a packet, and it's a packet of bread and wine. And so when we participate in perhaps the central sacrament of the church, we participate with bread and wine. Now, many of us are tempted to think of bread and wine as if they're common and ordinary and mundane, not special, and that's not really our fault. The reason that we think of bread and wine as common is because if you walk into a grocery store, there's bread all over the place. And if you walk into a grocery store, there's wine all over the place. And you can do things to make your experience with something like wine more special. So you can get on a plane and you can fly to Napa Valley and you can go to the wineries and the wineries are going to show you how they make the wine. They're going to teach you the difference between the varietals of grapes and the way that it tastes and they're going to help you smell it and they're going to help you taste it and they're going to help you pair it with food. And it does make that experience a little bit more special. But even when you're in Napa Valley, you can't help but notice that there's wineries all over the place. It's not uncommon. There's like 450 wineries in a 30-mile span in Napa Valley and Sonoma County. And so bread and wine seem like they're common. They seem like they're ordinary. But what I want to show you today using the scriptures is that bread and wine are anything but common. They're anything but ordinary. Bread and wine are symbols that God has given us, symbols that point to something beyond ourselves, Symbols that I believe point to something more sacred and holy and beautiful than we could ever imagine. 
Bread and wine point us to God. Bread and wine point us to who we really are. Bread and wine show us all of our potential and power. And bread and wine show us our fallenness and our brokenness. And bread and wine show us our redemption. And the Bible teaches this through the pages of the scriptures. I promise. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at that. And what I'm going to show you is not something that would be easy for you to come to by yourself. You know, that's part of the responsibility of a teaching ministry is you're supposed to point out things that are hard to see. You're supposed to teach things that people wouldn't automatically know. You're supposed to take somebody somewhere. And so we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to do that today. Uh, that, that doesn't mean that I'm smart. It means that I've dedicated my, my life to a specific call that God has placed on me right now. Or more simply, as my wife would tell you who's here, it's because I'm a nerd. And this is what I spend all my time doing. And she might also say something about a potential obsessive compulsiveness of my brain. But that's really beside the point. The point is that everything I'm going to show you is in here. And I don't expect you to be able to open the Bible and see it for yourself. But I do expect that after we go through it today, you'll never see it the same way. Never see bread and wine the same way. Somebody has to help you see it. But then once you see it, you can't unsee it. That's the beauty of seeing. It's the beauty of experience. And so today, I want to share this with you. I want to walk you through the story of bread and wine in the Bible. I might cite some stories or some names or some characters that you're not familiar with. Just stick with me. Just hang with me. I promise I'm not making it up. It's in here. Okay? Some of them are a little obscure, but, but, but walk with me. Uh, I'm going to connect things and weave things together. I'm going to try to not go too fast. It might feel like a lot, but, but hang with me. Because when we get to the end and we weave this all together, we're going to come to a climactic moment where we take that story and we hold it up together and, and we take it into ourselves. And it's going to be special when we understand what bread and wine point to. And so bread and wine in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1. On the third day, God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. And the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And so on the third day, God creates seed-bearing plants, and he creates fruit. Seed-bearing plant is kind of an awkward phrasing for a plant that grows up and the seeds are on the outside of it. And so the way that it reproduces is the wind blows and the seeds on the outside scatter and then they're planted into the ground and then they, they grow. And so a good example of a seed-bearing plant would be wheat. Have you ever seen a wheat plant? And so on the third day, God creates wheat and on the third day, God creates fruit, plums, figs, cherries, grapes. So on the third day, God creates wheat and God creates grapes. On the sixth day, God creates humans. He creates you and me. 
And he calls us images of God. We're the crown jewel of creation because we're made in his image, in his likeness, and we are given the most important task in creation. We are called as human beings to be images of God. And to be an image of God is to be a priest and to be a king. Joel has done a four-week series on this. I think it was in 2021, if you want more detail about that. But we are called to be priests and we're called to be kings. That's what it means to be a human being, to be a priest. What, what, what do priests do? Priests are those who mediate God to, the, to their surroundings, right? A priest stands in the in-between, and then the glory of God comes into them, and then it shines out of them. And so a priest mediates God to their surroundings. You and I are supposed to be the priesthood of creation. Do you know why we're supposed to be the priesthood of creation? because we stand in the in-between. We are dirt and we are divine breath. And so we are of the earth and yet we are animated by the spirit. Genesis chapter two, God forms man of the dirt and then breathes him to life. And so who better to stand in the in-between and mediate God to creation than those of us who are creation, dirt and divine, the breath of God. And so to be a priest is to take that glory of God into you and then shine it out of you. Jesus stands on a mountain in Genesis chapter five, or sorry, in the Matthew chapter five, the Sermon on the Mount. He stands on a mountain. He looks at his people. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill should not be hidden. Neither should a lamp be put under a basket. You put the lamp on a table and then it shines and lights up the whole room. You Go and do likewise. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This is not a theology that Jesus is making up. This is Genesis chapter one. We're supposed to be priests. The glory of God, the light of God comes into us as his image bearers and it's mediated out to the world. And then we take the beauty of the world that he's put us in charge in back into us and we give it back to God in worship. And so it's like a circuit. It's like a conduit. The glory of God goes out. The glory of God goes back. This is the world that he's created. We're supposed to be priests standing in the in-between mediating God to the world. We're also supposed to be kings. You know, he says, have dominion over this world. That's a kingship term. Who has dominion? The king. Who rules and subdues and reigns? The king. And so we're actually supposed to be the kings of this creation on God's behalf. And what kings do is they take their power, they put their hands on what's given to them, and good kings take it from good to even better. We have holy and transformative powers in us. Have you ever noticed that? You touch something, it's never the same. Uh, you come into a relationship with somebody, they're never the same. They come into a relationship with you, you're never the same. Why? Well, because you're an image of God. You're transformative. You have these powers inside of you. And the call of being a king is to take those powers, to put our hands on this world in the name of God and take it from very good at the end of day six to even better. Take it from a garden called Eden to a garden that covers the globe. This is the role of a human being, to be a priest, and to be a king, mediating God to the world and bringing his glory to the world by ruling over it and transforming it from glory to further glory, from good to better. Let me ask you a question. What is bread? 
Where does bread grow? Well, there's no such thing as a bread tree, right? There's a, the, it's, it's something humans have to make. So uh, James Jordan, who's a Bible teacher that has been very influential in my life, he says that the tragedy in the garden before the fall is that there's no donut trees. And he's right. There's no such thing as a donut tree. You have to make the donut. Bread is a human concept. And how do you make bread? You take day three wheat that God has given you and you put your image of godness into it. Okay, you take it, you put your hands on it, you thresh it, which before machinery means you smack it around until flour kind of falls out. And then you add water to it and then you add yeast to it and then you cover it and it rises. And then you take that risen dough and you put it into the fire that you made. And then you take it out of the fire at the right time that you made and now you have bread. Barley, raw, is edible. Flour, raw, is actually edible. Bread is better. Wheat is good. Bread is better. What is bread? It's an image, a picture of what it means to be an image of God. Take your hands and put it on this thing and make it better. Wheat to bread, glory to further glory. What is wine? It's kind of the same thing. Wine does not happen naturally, right? There's no, there's no wine ponds. You have to take the fruit that God gave us on day three, and then you squeeze the juice out of it. And then you put that into a sealed container, you add yeast to it, the yeast eats the sugar, that chemical reaction produces alcohol, it's aged, it's flavored, and after a long time, you have wine, right? Fruit is good, but have you ever had good wine? Wine is better. What is wine? It is day three fruit, very good, plus the image of God, even better. Bread and wine are symbols of what it means to be a human. They are pictures in reality of what it looks like when we do what we're supposed to do. And in the name of God, we give his glory to the world by putting our hands on what he's given us and making it even better. Glory to glory, very good to better. A garden called Eden to the whole world, wheat, to bread, grapes, to wine. Now the problem is that we don't always do this task very well, right? In the fall, creation is fractured. And so that means everything is fractured. We are fractured, our relationship with God is fractured, the actual created order is fractured. And so the kingship, and the priesthood that we're supposed to be is also fractured. And so the rest of the story of the Bible is about God restoring this. He's restoring the image of God. He's restoring you and me. He's restoring creation. We stand over creation, humans. If he wants to restore creation, he has to restore us. We are priests and kings. If he wants to restore creation, he has to restore the priesthood and the kingship. And the rest of the Bible shows this story. So he decides to go through a, a man and create a nation out of him. So he calls Abraham. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob wrestles with God and his name is changed to Israel. And then Israel has 12 sons. 
that becomes the 12 tribes of Israel, the Old Testament people of God. Okay, that's a, that's a brief summary. And guess what? The Old Testament people of God have a priesthood and they have a king. Not for no reason, because that's what it means to be a human. And so the, those through whom God's gonna restore the world, they have a priesthood and the priesthood has a job and they have a king and the king and his royal court have a job. It's representative of what it means to be humans. And what you will see in the Bible, if you look closely, is that in the Old Testament, bread becomes the food of priests. So priests eat bread. And the reason that you know this is because you go into the tabernacle or the temple, and on the stand, there sits something called the show bread or the bread of the presence. And in their rituals, they'd take that bread and they'd wave it around and they'd call upon the presence of God. And at the end of every day, they'd eat it and they'd remake it. Only the priest can eat the bread and only the priest can make the bread. If you walk into a temple and you're not a priest, you can't have the bread. It's their bread. Bread becomes the food of priests. Now, wine becomes the food of kings. If you ever see like an ancient depiction, a movie, an uh, art piece of a king, he's always doing three things. He's sitting on a throne, he's eating a giant turkey leg or some kind of feast, and he's drinking wine, right? Wine is the food of kings. Now, symbolically, this makes sense because wine is incredibly difficult to make. You know, if I gave everyone in this room all of the ingredients, perfect instructions, and all of the expensive equipment to go make wine, almost every single one of us would accidentally make vinegar. It's hard to make wine. It takes a long time. Being a priest is hard, but being a king, being a king is very, very difficult. Being a godly king, very hard to have that kind of responsibility, that kind of oversight, to wield that power in a godly and effective way. It's hard to be a king. And so wine, which is hard to make, becomes the food of kings. Wine also comes to represent blood, not just because it's red, but because to make it, you squeeze the juice or the blood out of the grapes, and then you go through your process. And that too, blood, represented as wine, is connected to being a king because in order to be a king in, in God's kingdom, the first criteria is you have to be willing to spill your blood for your people. You'll see this over and over again. If you're not willing to spill your blood for your people, the kingship gets taken from you. Okay, so uh, the most famous king in the Old Testament is David, and then the person that we call the king is Jesus. Do, do, do anybody from Sunday school remember which son of Jacob, which tribe of Israel David and Jesus come from? Do we know? Yell it out. What's that? Judah. Judah, one of the brothers. So the lion of Judah. Have you ever heard that? That's what we call Jesus. Uh, and so he's from the line of David, who's from the line of Judah, one of the 12 sons of, of, of Jacob. Now, we know that the kingship is supposed to go through Judah because when Jacob, the father, is dying, he blesses all the sons, and he tells, Jacob, or he tells uh, Judah, he says, the, the kingship is going to go through you forever. And you read the story in Genesis about Judah, and that's a strange thing because Judah is kind of an obscure character. You know, he, he's not very godly. He's not very faithful. He doesn't seem to be very important, and yet 
on his dying breath, Israel, the father of Israel, says, Judah, you and your line will forever be the king. Well, why is that? So if you, if you read the story that some of us have read uh, about Joseph being sold into slavery, you guys know that story? Joseph gets sold into slavery by his 11 brothers. Terrible, terrible thing for a brother to do. I'm a brother and I would never sell my younger brother into slavery. So a uh, bad thing to do. Joseph goes on to become the second most powerful man in the world, the right-hand man to Pharaoh. And the brothers are wallowing in the land with their father and there's a famine that comes and they're, they're gonna die. And so 10 of the brothers go to Egypt and they stand in front of Joseph. They don't know it's him and they beg him for food. But they left the youngest brother, Benjamin, behind. Now, Benjamin is the only other son of Rachel. So Rachel and Joseph, uh, sorry, Benjamin and Joseph are the sons of Rachel. That's who Jacob truly loves. And so he thinks he's already lost Joseph. He says, I can't lose Benjamin. And so only 10 of you go. They go, they stand in front of uh, Joseph and Joseph says, um, is this everybody? And they say, well, no, our father's back in the land. He's too old to travel. And he says, okay, is this everybody else? And so, well, actually our youngest brother's back there too. And so Joseph says, well, you have to go get him, bring him back and then beg me again. And so they go all the way back and they tell their father, we have to take the youngest with us. I'm sorry, we have to take him with us or we're not gonna get food. And, and Jacob says, you can't have him. I already lost Joseph. If I lose Benjamin, my life is not worth living. And Judah steps forward and says, I will put him under my charge. I will take care of him. And I promise you that I will get him back to you alive. And so all 11 of them go. They stand in front of Joseph. They beg him for food. He gives them food and he's still testing them. And so he puts gold and silver in their packs and then he arrests them outside the gates and accuses them of stealing from him. And he says, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna be gracious to you, okay? You can all go and you can even take the food, but the youngest, Benjamin, he stays with me and he becomes my slave. And Judah steps forward and says, you can't have him. He says, you can kill me or you can have me, but you can't have Benjamin. He's under my charge and I promised my father. And so Judah is willing to spill his blood for the one in his charge. And so Judah becomes the line of the kings. To be a king, you have to be willing to spill your blood for your people, criteria number one. And so bread is the food of priests. You see it in the temple. Wine, hard to make and representative of blood, becomes the food of kings. How's it go for the priests and the kings if you read the rest of the, the Old Testament? How do they do? at their jobs, not very well. You know, the priesthood is corrupt. And so God speaks through Ezekiel at one point, and he says, you know, you priests are like the shepherds that I gave my flock to, and you're supposed to take them to greener pastures. And I turn around, and when I come and I look and see how they're doing, not only have you not led them to greener pastures, you have killed the sheep and you have eaten them. It's not a good judgment upon the priesthood of Israel. The book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, a lot of that is about the priesthood. 
Because the priests, not only they have blood on their hands, but they're not even being faithful. They're, they're divorcing their wives, their faithful wives for, for, for younger women. And so God sees this and he says, you priests come into my temple and you pick up that bread that's called the bread of my presence with hands that are covered in blood and hands that are covered in the tears of your wives and you start waving it around and you want me to show up. He says, I might show up, but you won't like it if I do. The priesthood is corrupted and so the bread is stale and inedible and useless. How about the kings? How did the kings do? Has anyone in here ever actually read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles? It is a repetitive, depressing story because the kings are bad. None of them are very good. Most of them are apostates. They take idols and they bring them into the temples. They take foreign gods and they encourage their people to worship them. They're not spilling their blood for their people. They're not putting their hands on the kingdom and making it better. They're doing the opposite. And so the kingship is corrupt, and so the wine is rancid and sour. You can't drink it. You know, I learned this recently. When the waiter comes to your table, if you order a bottle of wine, he opens it, he uncorks it, and then he awkwardly picks one person at your table to take a little splash, and you're supposed to swirl it and smell it. And I always thought that it was like a sample. Like you order the bottle of wine, you don't really know what it tastes like, so you get to kind of sample it and see if you like it or not. That's not what that is, apparently. Can't send that bottle back because you don't like it. What that is, is, is they're giving it to you to see if it's rancid. Because if it's gone bad, it smells and it tastes terrible. It's not like, hmm, this is a little funky. It's like, this is bad. And so rancid wine, it's not drinkable. Spoiled wine, sour wine, it's not drinkable. And so the priesthood is corrupt. The bread is stale. The kingship is corrupt. The wine is sour. Here we have these two pictures of what it means to be a human. It's not working. And you and I are supposed to be images of God. We're supposed to be priests and kings. What are we supposed to do if the bread is stale? What are we supposed to do if the wine is rancid and sour? And so we turn the page and we come to Jesus. And as Christians, what we claim is that Jesus is the true priest and he's the true king. Jesus is the true priest, okay? He fulfills the priesthood, the perfect mediator between us and God. He stands at the in-between. He takes the presence and the power of God into himself and he shines it perfectly out into the world. He is the priest. Hebrews says he's the true high priest. He was the high priest when he lived. He was the high priest when he died. He was the high priest when he ascended to heaven. And so we do believe in a priesthood. We believe that Jesus is the priesthood. And he has fulfilled that and he stands as that mediator even today. Uh, bread, the food of priests. Jesus stands in front of people in the book of John and says, I am the bread of life. He's born, what town is he born in? Bethlehem in Hebrew, Bet lechem means house of bread. And so Jesus is the true priest. And in Christ, the bread that's stale and inedible and useless becomes soft and delicious and nourishing. Again, have you ever been somewhere where they're making fresh bread? It's intoxicating, the smell. 
you know, uh, I grew up here in Columbus. My mom belonged to the Westville Athletic Club. And every once in a while afterwards, she'd take us to the Great Harvest Bread Company. And you walk into that place and I was, you know, four years old. I remember what it smells like to this day. It's a glorious smell. That's the kind of bread we have now. In Christ, the bread is good again because the priesthood is good again. He's also the king, right? We call him Christ, which means anointed one. And the reason it's anointed is because the prophets anoint the king with oil. And so calling him Christ Jesus is the same thing as calling him King Jesus. And look at his ministry. Look at what he did when he, was, when he was walking amongst us. He was walking around, he was putting his hands on things and they were getting better. He touched the sick, they got better. He touched the blind, they were healed. He touched the deaf and they heard. He touched the demon possessed and they were freed from that oppression. He touched the chaos waters and it got still. He put his hands on this world and made it better than it was. He is the king, and he was certainly willing to spill his blood for his people. You know, on the cross, a few drops of blood redeems the whole world. His climactic moment of kingship is when he's taken up on the cross. He bleeds for us. And so Jesus is the true king. He is the true priest. He's the true king. And so the wine becomes good again. You know, his first miracle in the book of John, he's at a wedding in Cana, and he takes water and he turns it into wine, but not just any wine, wine that is so good, that is so delicious, that the people can't believe it. That's what kind of wine we have now. That's what we have in Christ. The rancid wine has become delicious and beautiful and artistic like wine is supposed to be again in him because he is the king. And so all of this whirlwind of biblical theology of bread and wine throughout the Bible leads us so simply to a meal that Jesus shares with his disciples. On the night that he's betrayed, he sits with them and he has bread and he has wine. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body, the priestly food. This is my body because this is who I am. I'm the priest, take it and eat it. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you. This is the blood of my, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins, wine, the food of kings, he gives it to his disciples and says, this is who I am. Watch me spill my blood for you. Watch me be the king. Take this and drink it. Now, what he could have said is he could have looked at his disciples and he could have said, okay, listen, I'm about to become the priest and I'm about to become the king. And so watch me take this bread, the food of priests, and watch me take this wine, the food of kings, and watch me eat it and drink it so that you remember that I'm the king. And tell this story for the rest of your life. But he didn't do that. He took the bread and he took the wine and he said, you take it and you eat it. You take it and you drink it. Why? Because we're supposed to be priests and kings again. We are in Christ. He is the true priest. He is the true king. He is the true image of God. In him, as Paul says, 
in Christ, what's true of him becomes true of us. And we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to pick that task up again and to go be priests and to go be king, go mediate God's glory to the world. Let it shine out of you. You are the light. Put your hands on your family, on your relationships, on your job, everywhere that you go, put your hands on it, make it better, be a king, be royal, go do what you were created to do. That is your purpose. You know that a lot of us struggle with meaning, identity, purpose. What are we supposed to do with our lives? That's what you're supposed to do with your life. You're supposed to be a priest and you're supposed to be a king. If you are a Christian, that is the call on every single head in this room. That is what God has commissioned you with. And in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, that is what he has enlivened you to do. You can go do that. And so we take the, the body and the blood of Christ, the priest and the king, and because we are in Christ, we take those things and we take them into ourselves we symbolically incorporate him into us because we are incorporated into him. And in that union and in that power, we go and we are priests and kings again in our lives and in our world. It is a glorious, heavy call. And yet every single person in this room is called to that greatness, is called to that. Christ died for us and we eat this meal together, not just to commemorate what he's done, but to commemorate who we now are, priests and kings, bread and wine. And so I want us to all stand together and we're gonna pray. And then we're gonna take the, the, the bread and the wine and I'm gonna lead you through communion. So don't jump the gun, all right? Let's pray together. <clears throat> Almighty God, we, your unworthy servants, give you humble thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all whom you have made. We bless you for our creation, our preservation, and all the blessings of this life, and above all, for your immeasurable love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask you, God, to forgive our sins Forgive us for that which we ought to do that we don't do and forgive us for that that we ought not do that we do and empower us with your spirit to take seriously this meal we're about to have together and then to go out into the world and to be what we were created to be. We love you and we trust you. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray and in the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. So open your cup. You gotta peel the very top layer back. All right, I've been on stage unable to open it before. And I thought at one point I was gonna have to pretend to take it, which I think would have been sinful. So everybody got it? All right, I wanna take it together. So hold it up with me and break it in half. The body of Christ broken for you. And now take it. Now open the wine, the juice. And hold it up. This is the cup 
the blood of the covenant of Christ spilled for you for the forgiveness of sins. And we drink it. And now with the band, we praise God and we thank him for what he's done. alone my hope is found he is my light my strength my song this cornerstone this solid ground firm through the fiercest drought and storm what heights of love what depths of peace when are stilled when striving cease my comforter my all in all here in the love of Christ I stand in Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, stored by the ones He came to save, till all that cross as Jesus died, the Satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. There in the ground. His body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day. Up from the grave He rose again, and as He stands in victory, since curse has lost, his grip on me for I am his and he is mine bought with the precious blood of Christ we thank you Jesus Thank you, Jesus. Oh, you love, you love, you love. No guilt in life, no fear in death. 
This is the power of Christ in me From life's first cry to final breath Jesus commands my destiny No power of hell, no scheme of man Can ever pluck me from his hand Till he returns or calls me home Here in the power of Christ I'll no power of hell No power of hell No scheme of man Can ever pluck me from his hand Till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand.